0: Hi, Internet. I'm Holly Anderson, Director of Politics and News at MTV, coming to you from our New York City studio. I don't know why they let me in here either. It's very nice. At any rate, this is The Stakes, MTV's political-ish podcast that winces at any mention of the election but is glued to political Twitter anyways. Y'all sure do love your chain restaurants. Coming up on The Stakes... Our national correspondent, Jamil Smith, speaks with Yusuf Salam, who was 14 years old when he was charged with the rape of a jogger in Central Park and became known as one of the Central Park Five.
1: Within the first few weeks of this case happening, there were over 400 articles written about us. All of these ads were making assumptions about us and ripping our lives apart.
0: This week, we'll also get a peek into another MTV podcast called Skillset that we think you'd really like if you like this one. It's hosted by MTV film critic Amy Nicholson, and in this interview, she speaks with Rosalind Weissman. She's the author of the book that became the movie Mean Girls, and unlike the movie, she's still keeping up with the tech that teens deal in today.
2: So you mean Lindsay Lohan would be texting pictures
3: of her boobs to people? Well, Yeah.
0: But first, right before the second presidential debate at Washington University in St. Louis, an on the spot interview between a local news anchor and a student went viral. Before we get further into that story, I want to let you know that this clip and the interview that comes after it deals with the issue of sexual assault. Tell me what happened.
4: Um, Well, I was Trump. I wanted to ask a question to a Trump surrogate as to how she could defend. When speaking to a survivor, I'm a survivor of abuse. I have friends who are survivors of sexual assault. And so I stand with these women all over the nation and I wanted to ask her how she could defend a man who makes comments that embody rape culture and perpetuate sexual assault. And I'm upset. I was fine when I was asking her, I'm upset right now because she was very dismissive and condescending.
0: That student and survivor is a woman named Ansley Calandra. MTV Founders editor Julie Zeilinger spoke with her this week about what it's like being a survivor and a meme during this election.
5: Hi, Ansley. Uh Thanks for joining me. Can you take us back to that viral moment when you confronted Omarosa in the spin room of the second presidential debate, which was held at your university, WashU? And can you describe what happened for everyone who maybe only saw the viral video?
4: So what happened was, you know, I had I had already talked throughout the day with several other people who are Trump supporters and I just I really do wanna to seek to understand better where people are coming from and how these issues that, you know, seem to affect me so personally are so important to me, how someone can kind of cast that aside. So I really I just wanted to understand and um I think I've mentioned to you before I spoke to Sarah Huckabee. We had, like, a great, respectful conversation. We clearly disagreed, but it was respectful. And so, you know, I came into the Marissa interaction thinking the same thing. I was like, I'm going to ask this Trump surrogate. How can she defend a man who embodies rape culture, makes comments that basically are the definition of sexual assault, grabbing women without consent? And, um, yeah, and you can see in the Bloomberg video, what ensued was basically just, like, a dismissal of me and, you know, her saying, like, oh, I didn't do that to you. I won't accept responsibility. I didn't do that to you. When, which was a strange thing to hear, because I never at any point in time insinuated that she did do that to me or that Donald Trump had done that to me. I, I, I never in any case implied that. So it was really just a way of deflecting the real question, which is, well, maybe you didn't do this. But our broader society is complicit in allowing this to happen, and why are you okay with that? Why are you okay with defending someone who so embodies this, um, what I see is a very negative part of our culture?
5: Absolutely. So, um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and so you write in the Founders piece uh, that you wrote for us that this is a very Mm -hmm. personal issue for you. And I'm wondering, to the Mm -hmm. extent that you're comfortable, can you tell us more about why you wanted to speak to Amaros in the first place, Um, beyond sort of just her being a Trump surrogate and and his comments? What brought you to this moment?
4: Yeah, so um, as it's revealed in the video, I am a survivor of an abusive relationship. And so what really kind of got me started in this work with Liz, which I do through my university, was not just that, like, Obviously, it was a horrible experience going through an abusive relationship. And, you know, I sympathize with anyone who's been sexually assaulted, anyone who has survived any kind of abuse. It's it's terrible. But what's equally, and even in some cases, more terrible and more harmful is the way that our society subsequently handles these cases. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's really what I wanted to come at it with when I was asking Omarosa. I wanted her to look at me recognize my humanity as a person who had experienced these things and, you know, be able to look at me in my eyes and offer some sort of, you know, reasoning for why it's okay to defend this sort of culture.
5: To zoom out a little bit beyond the specific interaction between you and Omarosa, what has it been Mm -hmm. like to watch this campaign unfold as a survivor of an abusive relationship and an advocate for survivors? I've I've heard from a lot of survivors that this has been a really triggering Mm -hmm. experience for them.
4: I mean, I don't know how much of a, on a personal level you want me to get into, but like watching Donald Trump, it's, it's, he reminds me so much in so many ways of my, um, my own personal abuser because the person I was in an abusive relationship with had narcissistic personality disorder. Mm -hmm. And when you know someone with narcissistic personality disorder, it's almost impossible after that to not pick up on these like clinical levels of narcissism when we see them because it's like unmistakable like I've lived through that I, I see that as what it is and so yeah seeing Donald Trump and the way that he conducts himself has been very very just like so reminiscent of um, my own abuser that it's, it's shocking
5: yeah, and it's, it's been hard, I know, for all of us to listen to this. Luckily, it's coming to an end soon. Um, yeah, it now, is. And now that you've had a little bit, like a little bit of distance from this incident, what have you learned? What are, what are you taking away from this, and how are you moving forward?
4: Uh, well, I've learned that I think it, it really is important to speak up. I recognize that not everyone is comfortable doing so, and that is, like, so, so legitimate because it is so hard to come forward in the current state of society, but from my own personal experiences, I just have decided, and I've learned from this, that, you know, I do want to speak out. I don't want to be in the shadows about this. I want to do whatever I can to fight this stigma and to fight this culture and to help solve these problems at whatever capacity I'm capable of. And, you know, whatever the negative backlash may be, like I'm ready for it. And I can, I can handle it because I just want to contribute. that would be, I guess, the biggest thing that I've
5: taken away. That's amazing. And I commend that and wish you the best of luck with that. Ansley, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us.
4: Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. It's good to speak with you
0: all. That was MTV Founders Editor Julie Zeilinger speaking with Ansley Calandra. You can read Ansley's essay at MTVNews.com. It's titled, I'm the Survivor Who Called Out Omarosa for Defending Trump.
6: A gang of violent teens terrorized New York. They beat her
3: with their fists. We believe a rock and a metal pipe. She was raped by four of these groups, four of these youths.
0: Yusuf Salam was 14 years old in 1989 when he was charged with the assault and rape of a jogger in New York City Central Park. He, along with four other convicted young men, were known as the Central Park Five.
3: Central Park Five. Central Park Five. Central Park Five.
0: Yusuf would go on to spend about seven years in prison. In 2002, DNA evidence led to the vacating of Yusuf's conviction and those of the rest of the Central Park Five. Since then, Yusuf has been determined to educate the public on injustices facing Americans in similar positions. MTV News senior national correspondent Jamil Smith. Spoke with Yusuf from his home in Atlanta about the Central Park Five case, his thoughts on Donald Trump today, and his current career as a motivational speaker.
7: Yusuf Salam, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You were 15 when you were arrested, Yusuf, and then tried and convicted of raping a woman in Central Park in 1989. What do you remember about being a teen in New York, especially in Harlem at that time? This is the height of the crack era, uh, high crime rates. You know, we think of you know, New York in 1989 and we think of it in a certain way.
1: Yeah, New York City back in 1989, um, when I was a teenager, it was, it was definitely a very, very innocent time for me um, to then be faced with this, this uh, experience, a life-changing experience, which was tremendous because then my whole teenage years was a blur. You know, I had to grow up very quickly and many of the things that my friends were doing, I never got an opportunity to experience. You know so here I was going back and forth to court as if I was going back and forth to a job you know if I wanted to you know experience what some of my friends were experiencing it was a very very scary kind of thing to be outside and experience because I was also um, there was also there was always this question as to whether we had done this crime or not, and it was only until after we had done time in prison for a crime we didn't commit and come home that the truth came out, and then all of a sudden people were like, oh, yeah, that's my friend, you know? So it was, it was a more joyous kind of occasion after that. So when you're being brought in for questioning from your house
7: that day, the day after the woman had been found raped in the park, and you had been in the park that night with a group of other boys who watched, you know, some of whom, you know, I guess, committed some petty, or, you know, some petty crimes, do you remember thinking as you're being picked up by the police that the truth would prevail, do you remember believing in the system at that point?
1: You know, when I was when I was being picked up by the police, I didn't think that I was being picked up as a suspect. So it wasn't even in it didn't even hit my mind that, you know, the truth would prevail or anything like that. It was more so, oh, they wanted to ask me about what I saw. You know, I heard the cops were looking for me, so let me go to the cops and tell them what I saw because I knew that I hadn't done anything wrong. You know, um, even being a witness to something I didn't realize was bad, you know, but that was was all I was, a witness. And I had seen this stuff and it was almost like I was a deer caught in headlights. But the good thing was that I didn't involve myself in any of the um, malicious acts that happened that evening. There's a lot of evidence now that shows how easily
7: false confessions can be coached out of subjects, uh, particularly young people your age at the time. And you never confessed on tape, but others implicated you. And the interrogating detective noted that you said that you had participated in the woman's assault. Why did you not confess like all the others did on tape?
1: Well, part of part of the reason why I didn't confess, I think, is that, and this is just me being very, very honest about the situation. I don't think they had enough time with me. I was picked up with Corey Wise, and he was 16 years old. And when they began to interrogate him, I, hear, I, I, used, I heard them beating him up in the next room. And every once in a while, they would peek into the room that I was in, and they would say, you're next, you know. Um, The whole idea that the uh, police officer would say, oh, you know, hey, I I didn't get a chance to get a confession from this guy, so I'm going to say that he said some, uh, he implicated himself and said that he was there, you know, was, was the way that the city, I think, kind of skirted around the area and the fact that I never made a written or videotaped confession. Part of it also was just me knowing that I didn't do anything wrong and me just kind of standing by that truth. But you go through this process where you're telling the officers, what exactly you saw over and over and over again. And we're talking about hours upon hours of interrogations. I mean, some of the interrogations lasted up to 36 hours. They didn't give us anything to eat. They didn't give us anything to drink. And they also denied us sleep. So it was that kind of thing where, you know, we were always led to be made uncomfortable.
7: Yusuf, you, you recently made a video with MoveOn.org and another group called Four our future fund for against the election of Donald Trump, who in 1989, of course, took out that full-page ad in four New York newspapers calling for the death penalty to be reinstated pretty much just for y'all. Uh, is all during the media frenzy about the Central Park Jogger case. Then when the city settled your lawsuit in 2002, he said publicly that it was a disgrace that the city settled with you guys for $41 million. And now just this month, He's still saying that you're guilty of the crime, even after being exonerated.
1: Why is Donald Trump so obsessed with y'all? This was a common citizen who took his own money to pay for ad space in New York City's newspapers. I mean, most people don't make $85,000 a year. He paid $85,000 to run an ad in New York City's newspapers to do what? To call for the reinstatement of the death penalty within this case. Then the other thing that we have to look at is the proximity, the time frame. And the time frame is that this crime happened on April 19th in 1989. Now we're talking about two weeks. Yeah. Ads came out on May 1st. Exactly. Donald Trump had already taken out the ads that ran on May first, calling for the reinstatement of the death penalty, within the first few weeks of this case happening, there were over 400 articles written about us, and none of these articles um, came with. I went and I interviewed the parents of Yusuf Salam or Raymond Santana or any of the other guys. You know, all of these ads were making assumptions about us and ripping our lives apart, and it was unfortunate because, you know, it, it goes. It goes back to the old saying that you shouldn't judge a book by the cover. Right. But unfortunately, everybody judges books by the cover. And this is something that we have to understand as people. Yes, it's our ideal. We don't want to judge books by the cover, but we always need to put our best foot forward so that when people are judging us by the cover, they put the best judgments forward. Unfortunately, under the, um, the guise of freedom, under the banner of the American flag, Black people really have never been free. They've never been equal. Even in the Constitution of the United States, we still have the 13th Amendment that's alive and well. Ava DuVernay just did a very, very good piece on Netflix about it. Indeed. Very, very powerful piece. And I encourage folks to watch that. But, you know, this whole idea that we are... And this is this is the un, other unfortunate part because, you know, during the first presidential campaign, or debate rather, you know, Donald Trump had said, well, Hillary, you called... Uh, black people, black young people back in the days, super predators, right. but you have since apologized. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's like he's trying to almost like muddy the waters um, by saying that. But the greatest, the, 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 um, the most unfortunate thing I think that happened, and a lot of people were tweeting about this, was that she didn't take the opportunity at that point to mention that Donald Trump had taken out these full page ads calling for our execution and it was found that we didn't do it through DNA evidence.
7: You you're now a motivational speaker and someone who talks about prison reform, not just abolition, but prison reforms throughout. Since you were tried incorrectly convicted, New York did bring back the death penalty from 1995 to 2007. We've grown the prison population by (laughs) exponentially Um, intention between police and black communities remains very, very high. What has changed for the better, though, that could be the thing that stops the next Central Park Five type case from happening? One in which, you know, a mix of race and politics and our justice system really conspire to make a
1: tragic error. I think one of the things that's changed for the better is folks like myself going out there and continuing to talk about these issues. I mean, if we look at the justice system as as a whole, the police departments, especially in New York City, it's unfortunate because— not every police officer is bad. And the, the bad officers are actually a very small amount. But it's not that they're being taught this stuff in the academies. A lot of them are being raised with these ideas. On the side of cop cars in New York City, you have these three words. And these, and these three words really are ideals. And those ideals say courtesy, professionalism, and respect. And I've, I've gotten those ideals from officers that I've met you know, throughout my travels, but then at the same time, when it comes to the biggest time of my life, the Central Park Jogger case, I didn't receive courtesy. I didn't receive professionalism. I most certainly didn't receive respect. And in many ways, that same thing is playing out today. And most people who, you know, are, are come under the clutches of the police departments of the world, they don't even receive the first letters in those words. They never receive CPR. You know, and so. A lot of things have changed in terms of them not doing things as, as, um, as blatant. I mean, they want to be very, very careful, you know, but the things that have remained the same is us still being victimized in the worst way, us still being uh, pointed at and, and looked at as super predators. So even though, you know, um, uh, Mrs. Clinton has said that she's apologized for making that statement, what I submit is that they never replaced those laws that came about as a result of that statement. They never replaced the laws that came about as a result of them looking at the Central Park Five and saying, we need to begin to change the age that we start prosecuting these people because these people are committing crimes at a, less, at a younger age. And so therefore we need to lower the age that we look at them and convict them as adults, you know, right. and so those laws never change. those laws are still on the books. those laws are still alive and well. Systemically, we need change, you know right, and unfortunately, I mean, yes, they gave us a, a lawsuit they settled our they settled our lawsuit and gave us some kind of monetary value but that monetary value doesn't erase the fact that we went to prison. It doesn't erase the fact that that was something very real that happened. And many times when I go around and I speak to college students or elementary school students and even high school students, you know, people are, are looking at the future and looking at their place in society. And they're, they're, the, the conversation that I'm having, at least, tells me that the, the, the future is going to be alive and well. Yusuf Salaam, appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, bro.
0: That was MTV News senior national correspondent Jamil Smith speaking with Youssef Salam. Just in time for Halloween, we had to share this interview from a sister podcast of ours here at MTV called Skillset. Hosted by MTV film critic Amy Nicholson, Skillset is the show where every guest is an expert, and every week they teach us a new way to look at the movies. In this interview, Amy speaks to Rosalind Weissman, author
2: of Queen Bees and Wannabes, the book that became Mean Girls. So, Rosalind, I read the book after I saw the movie. And I was shocked to realize that so much of what I thought was fiction was actually true. That, say, the rule about not being able to wear jeans any day but Friday or wearing a ponytail more than once a week came from a real high school junior you met.
3: Sure. Yes. It was a girl that I worked with a lot. Um, I had hundreds of girls help me write um, the first edition of Queen Bees, and then subsequently, I've always had girls um, talk to me and advise me about what I should put in. So, yep, all of those stories are true.
2: So, what do you think when you see a girl dressed up as
3: a plastic for Halloween? Oh, I hate that! I hate that! Oh my gosh, you've asked me like <laughs> my my. It's like oh, I hate that! I'll, oh my god! <laughs> it's like no. I remember the first time. I remember the first time. That I think it was like sixth grade girls I was working with came up to me and told me that, that they had seen some girls do that. It was like right after. So the m- movie first came out, I think, in March or April, maybe May. I can't remember. It was like the spring. And... Um, I'll never forget that. And you know, so at first I was completely horrified, like horrified, because it's antithetical to everything I'm trying to do. Right. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I work I work with teenagers. And so I also have to give them grudging respect for like subverting every single thing I do. So, you know, I try and make like the world a better place and I try and help people and I have to give credit, like, you know, like, yeah, of course you subverted that, sure. <laughs> there you yeah, duh. So <laughs> (laughs) Um, So it's, it's, it's simultaneously horrifying. And at the same time, like, I get it.
2: So what do you think is the most accurate scene in the movie?
3: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Unfortunately, the party scene can be pretty realistic. I mean, I do think that still girls use um, for all sorts of baggage that we put on girls so that we can't allow them to celebrate their sexuality or, you know, feel shamed or sort of conflicted about the way that they Show their sexuality. So they have to use excuses like Halloween, where they get a pass, right, to be as sexy as they want to be. So, whatever you are, you're like the sexy kitten, or you're the sexy witch, or you're the sexy I don't even know what. So, I want girls to understand why they're doing that. And I want them to be able to come into their own in all different kinds of ways, in ways that they can be proud of. So For me, that kind of stuff is really realistic even to this day.
2: It's been a little bit since the original book came out. Oh, it's been forever. Forever. It's been forever. It's been forever forever in teen world. There are kids in school right now who are being born when the book came out. Yeah, totally. Totally. And in that time, they're dealing with new weapons that the first edition of the book and the movie didn't even have. Right. This is pre-Facebook even. Right. So you've you've updated the book yourself, which means if you were updating Mean Girls, what would you put in that now?
3: Yeah. So like every five years, I have to update the book because things change. Like there are some things that stay the same. Girls, you know, friendships are really important to them. Jealousy, betrayals, comparing yourself constantly, all that sex sex stuff and sexuality I've been talking about, like that stuff is, you know, the way things are. Um, but the way in which we communicate obviously has changed. So if I was, you know, if we were redoing Mean Girls then it would have to be about those things and it would have to be about, and in all seriousness, the thing that I think is really more difficult for girls now is that I think that if girls are feeling super anxious and like crazy, I think there are really good reasons for it. And I think it's because like you, you know, constantly trying to get as many likes on Instagram or, the thing that I that I talk about in this version is that you've got this like in, imaginary audience that you're constantly trying to please. And girls have had that for a while, but it's just so much more extreme now because you're, when you post, you're posting, especially on Instagram, like what is it that you want to show you the public face, you know, your public face of uh, to the world? And then of course, it's like you get constant judgment on that. And so I really worry about what Instagram does to girls about like, well, who are they? What's their identity? What are they proud of? Why are they so focused on trying to please people that are invisible to them? Like that is crazy making. So, and how are you supposed to, you know, come into yourself and your personality and what you want, what you don't want. If you're so focused on everybody else, that's, That's not, that's just to me is unacceptable um, for girls and by the way, for boys too. So that's, that's one thing. Of course, I'm, you know, we'd be talking about sexting. Like, I don't know, I'm guessing, you know, somebody breaks, a girl breaks up with her boyfriend and then, you know, within 24 hours, that guy gets 10 sort of naked pics or bra pics of girls saying, Hey, I'm available. That's not unusual for the kids that I work with today.
2: So you mean Lindsay Lohan would be texting pictures of her boobs to people? Well. Yeah. (laughs) In the movie. (laughs) It's been a long time since I was a girl. But so wait, one thing I'm really curious about is that it feels like the conversation about bullying has really changed in the last 10 years that lately we're in a culture where people aren't afraid to say that they're victims of bullying. I mean, even Donald Trump is eager to claim he's a victim of bullying. What's going on?
3: Well, he's ridiculous. I mean, that's, that's a completely, it's, he doesn't know what the definition of bullying is by using that term. Young people don't want to hear the word bullying for the most part, because the way in which it's taught in schools is sort of like what was made fun of in Mean Girls. Like, you know, it's super cheesy and, you know, you do trust falls and some girl says something completely different fake and stupid. Wait, are you saying you don't do trust falls? I do not do trust falls. I've never done trust falls. I am completely do not do trust falls. I do not. (laughs) I was so mad when I saw that in the movie. I was like, that is not me. I do not do that. Because there are some things that she did do that I do. Um, You know, the look around thing, the hands up. I don't really do that anymore, frankly, because after Mean Girls came out, they, you know, kids would laugh at, you know, they would laugh in a good way. They wouldn't make fun of me. They'd just be like, oh, you're the mean girls person. I'd be like, okay, I can't do that anymore. Um, <laughs> for the most part, young people get really stupid bullying assemblies and presentations or like adults think that they're going to put some poster on a wall saying like no bullying or give you a button. And it, like, that's going to stop it. And then the other part is, is that we never, ever adults, never, ever talk about how adults treat kids. we don't talk about the fact that, and it's true that in so many schools in this country, there is at least one adult who is a nightmare to the kids. just like arbitrarily like having like control battles with them and being a bully. And then the other part is there could be teachers who hate what that other person's doing, but they can't stand up to them. And then we say to the kids, well, if you're being bullied, go talk to an adult. But adults have very little credibility on this issue it's really like, I think that young people just are dealing with a lot of hypocrisy a lot of the time.
2: Yeah. I mean, I can't help but think that Hollywood is so much like a high school itself. When you think about how mean the industry turned to Lindsay Lohan in the years after Mean Girls came out.
3: Oh yeah, for sure. And also, yeah, it is. And so is every magazine that says who wore it better and who's pregnancy and who's this and that. So frankly, I mean, honestly, you know, people who are listening to this, if you're looking at that stuff, then you're buying into the culture that's making you completely crazy and insecure. So, and like pitting us against each other. So every time we look at those magazines, it like chips away at who we are.
2: So with everything you've seen and with all the girls that you've seen grow up,
3: where do you think the ladies of Mean Girls are today if there was a sequel? I think Regina George, if she could drop her um, focus on getting revenge on people. And this is true for like all girls and women that are in this situation who have this kind of pot, like strong charisma leadership qualities um if they can drop the revenge part then they actually can turn into genuinely cool awesome women who can do amazing things in the world but they have to take stock of what they're doing and they have to take stock of the fact that their friends aren't their friends they just are people that are f- afraid of them and want to be connected to them for the stuff that they stuff that they get um and i think that Like the Katie character, hopefully, would continue down that path. The Gretchen Wieners of the world, really, it's like that's sometimes to me like the hardest because they get so, they're so focused on pleasing the person in front of them that they can't, they lose themselves in the process and they don't have the thing inside of themselves to say, hey, why am I doing this? Like, And I see that a lot with adults.
2: Thank you so much for talking to us today. This has been really interesting. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for talking to me.
0: That was Amy Nicholson, MTV's film critic, speaking with the author of Queen Bees and Wannabes, Rosalind Weissman. Amy hosts another MTV podcast, Skill Set, that you can find in the MTV podcast feed right alongside this one. We'd like to leave you this week the way we always leave you, with a little bit of art in your day. It's been a pretty grim week, and it couldn't be a better time to hear from our own poet-in-residence in Tennessee. Here's Marcus Ellsworth reading a piece he wrote called The Way He Moves.
6: You see him from across the room, all bravado and musk stuffed in a suit. He grins in a way he thinks is seductive. You turn away and he thinks you're being coy. He tells you as much as his finger traces a slimy line around the rim of the drink you did not ask for, but he ordered for you anyway. His hands, like his gesture, are more clawing than kind. I'm a nice guy, he grunts and wipes the bile dripping from his lips. His eyes are dull but intense, tracing everything but your face. Like a butcher, deciding on choice cuts of meat. He is one of them. You excuse yourself and leave, hoping he won't follow, but there on the street is another, t-shirt, jeans, and a beard that almost hides his poisonous, predatory mouth. He barks something at you, equal parts pleasure and contempt. You ignore him. He insults you. You keep walking and wonder if this one will attack, or if the infection is not that strong in him. Yet. You've heard of how they maim body and soul to sate their hunger. You remember past encounters with them, and stories from friends who were less fortunate. How sometimes the toxicity spreads. Other times it festers. Some even claim to have found cures. But you've seen them everywhere. At work, whispering obscenities to each other. They lurk on dating apps. You met two of them at church. You've glimpsed it in your father and ignored signs of it in your brother. You think it does not infect every man. Some must be immune. We can't all be these ravenous beasts. And perhaps you're right. The toxicity doesn't always manifest the same way. But all men are carriers. It can be so subtle for us that we don't even think of it. Casual sexism, subconscious superiority, a fragile truce with other genders... But truthfully, it will take all of us to end the epidemic. To root out the causes and vaccinate future generations against it before it spreads to them. You see, I've been attacked by one too. I sometimes see signs of it in the mirror. Both my survival and the toxic monster within that
0: That was Marcus Ellsworth, I'm Holly Anderson, and those were The Stakes. Thank you for listening. Take care of each other out there, and we'll be back next week.
4: This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihaljevic for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts.